Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, one of your hosts, and we're here today with Olivia Weiser, Associate Professor of History at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. We're going to be talking about her 2015 Yale University Press release, Ill-Composed, Sickness, Gender, and Belief in Early Modern England. Good morning, Olivia. How are you today? Good morning. I am doing great. Thank you. Yeah. Enjoying a few more days of quarantine? <laughs> Just in <a> lockdown? <laughs> yeah, that's our world now. I am so pleased to be talking to you about Ill-Composed. And I, I do want to mention this is an older book. And you've stepped away from it for a bit. So thank you for revisiting with me. This very fascinating. Yeah, great. It's a it's a really fun book. And I bet it was fun to write to research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got to read people's mail and private diaries, semi private diaries. So that's always fun. That it's so cool. And you're like, oh, you get into somebody's mind, you know. Uh, So you can be described as an historian of early modern England, an historian of medicine and as a gender historian. And this book sits right at the intersection of all three of these subfields. And your PhD from Johns Hopkins is actually in the history of medicine, I see, which I suspect reflects a very longstanding interest in this topic. So I think I see pretty clearly how you came to this work, but I would appreciate it if you could round out that picture for me and our listeners. So how did you come to write this book? Sure. I mean, yes, your assumption is correct. I have been working on early modern medicine for a very long time. I actually wrote an undergraduate history thesis on early modern English medicine, and I went back recently to my alma mater to give a paper, and my former teachers there were like, you're still working on this, huh? Wow. I'm still on it. I this book came out of my dissertation in graduate school. So it's a long labor of love. It took me a very long time uh, to work on, to write, in part because I had to do that work that many of us uh, historians do of kind of revising our writing from Mm -hmm. one genre, the dissertation, into another genre, which is a book that people might actually Mm want to read. So that's kind of, that's where I came from. Uh, that's mm-hmm. how it came to be. Um, yeah, your undergrad. Well, that's impressive. Undergraduate work. Uh, that's a yeah. That's a long relationship with early modern English medicine. Um, <laughs> woo! Yeah, <laughs> it paid off though. Um, and before we get into kind of a, a discussion of the of what you argue, I'd like to talk about how you get there. So I'm interested in hearing about your sources. Um, most of your the chapters of your body chapters are based on a series of printed primary sources that you refer to as diaries, um, and these are kind of a semi personal notes, right, for mm-hmm. suffering people. Um, how did you would did you find those first? Um, what what led you like talk to me about these guys? Yeah, I mean diaries is really a not quite an accurate term. I think 
I, I think I use the term ego literature. That's kind of a more umbrella term to kind of capture all this, the various categories of personal writing. Uh, because diaries at the time weren't always what we think of as a diary. They weren't always private. They weren't always someone writing in isolation to themselves. They could be quite public. Um, and they could be hybrids. They could be diaries that also functioned as account books. So it's super difficult to use terms that we use today to talk about specific kinds of writing because the categories are really blurred. But I um, I came across printed what we would call memoirs or autobiographies, diaries, these kinds of categories, people writing about themselves. And I started collecting stories of sickness, how people were talking about being sick. And then I kind of expanded outward to try to collect other ways people wrote about their bodies. So correspondence, both to healers and kind of lay correspondence um, among friends and, and family members. Um, and then the, the last one of the chapters in the book looks at a completely different kind of, of writing, which are pauper petitions, which is not at all ego literature. It's a very mediated legal documents um, from parish records. So I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I, I mean, it's possible you're about to say what I'm going to ask you anyway, um, is that we shouldn't understand these, though, as personal. They're, they're, they're meant to be public, right? They're meant to be, in some cases, published or at the very least shared broadly. It really varies. Some of them, yes, and some of them, not so much. But even correspondence was not meant to be private. It was what we would call semi-private or semi-public. I mean, letters were written to be read out loud and shared. Um, or, and if not, they would say, I found one letter that says, pray, burn this once you read it. Because the assumption was it was a public document. And a lot of these, um, what we would call diaries, are written to posterity or to husbands who the women know are going to read it or to God in a way that is different from how we think about personal writing where, yeah, maybe you're, you're writing Dear Diary at the top of each page, but you kind of know it's your own private um, very few of these documents are fully, fully private. And it's just so certainly, good. yeah. Yeah, certainly not what we would think of as, um, you know, like the journaling that's popular today or what have you, exactly. or some sort of like, I'm thinking about what I wrote when I was 13. You know, it's not that. It's not that. I mean, it's, if anything, <laughs> like a, a blog post or something. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, oh. they're very much, I mean, there's this one diary by one of my favorite. Uh, writers from the time period, a woman named Sarah Cooper, who's incredibly grumpy and unhappy and prolific. She writes thousands and thousands of pages and she patches this, her diary together. It's almost like a commonplace book, which were these kinds of um, ways of almost like scrapbooks from the time period where people would collect the verse or prose or sermons or jokes, things they heard. And she kind of combines her diary with a commonplace book. It's just interspersed with all this different stuff that she comes across in her life and she doesn't tag it you have to just kind of recognize it and i i think i didn't recognize a lot of it um but it's really interesting how even that what looks like a diary at first glance is actually something quite different so the other thing though is that then we know that how these people are writing is how it may be how they feel and the subject matter seems very intimate but in some way it's still scripted or it has to at the very least meet the social norms 
Exactly. Yeah. That's something I'm really interested in kind of teasing apart in this book is kind of what are the various cultural forces that are shaping the ways people write about illness and how much, you know, in large part, it's the, it's the writing form itself. If you're uh, writing in a diary that also kind of serves as a, an account book, you might start counting your illnesses or counting how many stools you had or what you might start to quantify your body the way, the same way you're quantifying everything else in your diary. Or if you're writing a spiritual journal to God, you might start to, you know, then that's the frame in which you're thinking about illness. So I'm, I'm very interested in that. And I'm also interested in all the different cultural expectations and norms um, that are also influencing the ways people think about illness in addition to the writing itself. So the categories I'm particularly interested in this book, which are not exhaustive, I could have done other ones, um, are gender, religion, and economic status. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So uh, what would you say is the main argument of this book? Um, so I, I think the main, the main argument is about gender, is that gender is important to understanding how People in the this period, in the 1600s and 1700s, in England at least, understood illness. And I can speak in a moment a, a little bit more about what I've found about gender. But I think even though the argument is about gender, I think the kind of larger value of the book, I hope, is that there's all these cultural forces and scripts that are informing how people understand illness. It's not gender alone. It's also all the things I just talked about. It's, it's sources we as historians are using. It's gender norms. It's religious beliefs. Um, it's age. It's marital status. It's all these different factors. And what I'm arguing here is that they're basically all these building blocks that people have to make sense of why they're sick. One of a, a, large building block I haven't mentioned yet is medical theory, the ways people actually understood how their bodies worked. And so my my kind of central argument about gender is that men and women tended to arrange these building blocks differently. So a really reductive kind of simplistic way that some people, unfortunately, I think have taken this is, oh, men are from, this is early modern men are from Mars, women are from, <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. No. They're essentially different. <laughs> Rather, they're kind of making different emphasis, they're emphasizing different things. They're kind of on different ends of a spectrum. And in many ways, they overlap on that spectrum. And so the the kind of argument I'm making about gender is that women tended to look to social relationships, to other people to make sense of both why they're sick and why they're better, and to kind of make sense of their suffering in a way that differed from men who who also looked to social categories, but they tended to couch, to kind of make sense of illness within the context of financial concerns, occupational concerns, um, and to look to their own bodies as barometers of health as opposed to those of others. So again, some, there's to, there are tons of ex- exceptions. It's not all women did one thing and all men did another. It's not women are social and men are not social. Um, but rather, there are just these different emphases and just kind of trying to make sense of them and explain why we see them in some places and why we don't in others. And, and how gender intersects with those other kinds of threads and discourses I was talking about. How, you know, in one sense, in one example, it might really be all about the writing and another, it might be all about their, their religious beliefs. So kind of how these different threads all intersect. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Because um, you contribute to our understanding of kind of the lived experience of religion, the lived experience of gender, um, ideas about nature and the history of medicine here um, by using but the gender like as this kind of in this self-referential discussion that, that is gendered. Um, wonderful. That That's very clear to me. Uh, and I think you explained that really well. So let's talk about your first chapter, Curing and Caring for the Early Modern Body. And it's here that you engage the most with the standard history of medicine, specifically humoral theory. Um, and you talk, you begin to talk about how people discuss their illnesses. Um, and it seems to me here that you make kind of the first salvo into this overarching argument about uh, how illness is constructed. So is that a fair description of what you do here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. So I kind of introduce humoral theory which is the prevailing framework for thinking about illness at the time, which is this idea that all bodies are made of these four humors and fluids that are in unique balance with each other and that their corruption or their kind of their flow or their imbalance is the cause of ill health. And there are various ways people understood their lifestyle choices as affecting the, the flow and balance and corruption or health of their humors. And so here I kind of walk through those aspects of life from the point of view of the patient. I think this chapter um, is actually my least favorite, in part because it's my attempt to show where my argument is really hard to find. Um, it's the one, the most of the book is based on what, what we were talking about before, about ego literature. So these first person accounts and this chapter is looking at case books. So it's looking at writing by practitioners, by physicians and surgeons, and trying to use that to say, okay, if gender is so important to how people understand their illness, how does it work in the medical encounter? How does it shape the ways healers and doctors are negotiating health together? So the one of the only sources we have for accessing that moment, that clinical moment, are case histories and ob- what are called observations that are written by physicians. And um, I really had a hard time finding anything about any of my arguments, any of my findings, which were so apparent in the other kinds of writing, I found really difficult to find here in case books. So I kind well, of worked when you through have- that is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I th- I found this, you know, I work with inquisition records and there, when the conversation is so driven by someone who does this every day, right? And you have these really repetitive questions where, and the answers are meant to fit in these very clear slots. It becomes, it's then you're studying the categories, not the people, exactly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, my sense was part of the difficulty with that and just the the expectations and motivations of the healers who are writing these case books. They want to look good. There are reputations at stake. So it's almost like their concerns are cloaking the words. I mean, of course, they're, all, they're also, these are mediated, right? You're not ever getting the patient's words when you're looking at a healer's case book. But their concerns and, and expectations and anxieties about their own status are kind of cloaking what patients are saying and doing. And so what I found is the the places in these casebooks where I was able to find gender at work were in what I call these negative spaces, these mentions of physical grimaces or clenched fists or, you know, these little moments where a doctor might, um, there's this one example of a surgeon named Richard Wiseman who says he looks into the face of his patient when he's letting blood, which is a really common humoral treatment. And he can tell by the way their face changes that it's time to stop. 
So these like little moments where they're talking about mannerisms and behaviors, um, not not it's not about words and and verbal exchanges. That these are are moments where we start to see gender emerge in these kinds of documents. Okay. You've uh, and then you move forward with chapter two, learning how to be ill. Um, and then you really get into the this, this is the heart of the book. Um, and this chapter, I love it. It opens with an example of a woman who grew ill from eating loads of fruit, wet, humor and balancing, biblically questionable fruit, <laughs> which you then link me, right, which you then link immediately to Augustine. And I think this example demonstrates what you're doing in this chapter, which is yeah. really great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm linking it to August to the story of Augustine stealing pears from the neighboring garden and kind of ruminating on the guilt of and gluttony of needing what you don't actually need, taking what you don't need. Um, and so my interest here in this this chapter, it's called Learning to Be Ill, and the kind of presumption, you know, the underlying assumption here of this chapter and the whole book is that illness is learned behavior. It's a, a learned, patterned cultural exchange and and role that we inhabit. And so here I'm really interested in what are the stories that were circulating at the time or that people had access to that taught them how to be sick. Mm-hmm. So and how to understand their illnesses, right? Exactly, yeah. To to give them meaning, mm-hmm. to explain them, to make sense of mm-hmm. otherwise powerless situation. Um, and also to mm-hmm. explain them in that, you know, how how do I get better? What's wrong with me? And how do I get better? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the three kind of and yeah. <laughs> we, we keep doing this. We want to talk at the same time. So uh, this is yeah. Okay, you go, and then I'll I'll. Res- <laughs> Sorry. I want to say this is a this is a place where we see the gender divide really strongly here. Kind of we say your argument, but please. I'm going to just let you talk since you're the author. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, sorry about that. The, I was no, going to say the, the three kind of category, the stories that I kind of highlight here are religious mm-hmm. stories, um, like Augustine's confessions, stories about other people, and stories about the self, People, stories people tell about themselves. So, yeah, here there's the gender argument comes out. Um, in that I found that a lot of the women in the, in my sources were more likely to, to look to others, stories of others, and men were more likely to look to stories of themselves. And I, I try to explain why that would be. And my explanation is essentially it has to do with life and work, the particulars of daily life, mm-hmm. women's life and work. Women were doing all kinds of things in the period, but a lot of their day-to-day lives involved body work, involved touching, curing, healing, nursing, bearing, rearing bodies in a way that men's mm. didn't. Um, it had to do with the kinds of writing that they left behind. So women's writing tended to be more spiritual, which taught writers to kind of look to other people as models, whereas a lot of the writing by men is more varied. There's tons of spiritual stuff, but there's tons mm-hmm. of other kinds of writing too. So it just might be an artifact of, kind of the, the type of writing we have. And then finally, mm-hmm. um, the ways men and women were recording medical knowledge. So a lot of women, a lot of men and women wrote recipe books, compiled recipe books, these kind of books of various remedies for how to cure, to use in the home to cure various ailments. But it's on, one of the only forms of medical writing that women wrote at the time. 
There are many exceptions by very learned women, but for the most part, your ordinary woman living in this period in England, this would have been the only kind of medical work that she would have authored. And Mm -hmm. recipes also teach writers to compare, to kind of look to others, to look to the stories of others to make sense of whether a recipe worked. So those are kind of my attempts to explain why we see this kind of gendered breakdown. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think this is probably also a good time to to expand upon something you just mentioned, this, there seems to be like, uh, there's a lot of this, right? These accounts are quite common. It seems you've got dozens at least. And so I'm reading kind of a low key, maybe obsession with illness, um, or particularly as it relates to religion, superstition, part of an overarching feeling of powerlessness, maybe. Um, these seem very popular, specific to this time and place. Is, is, am I right on that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There was, I think, a lot of what you're picking up on is the religious aspect of a lot of this writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we would call Puritans, which is a vexed category, but is generally this very extreme version of Protestantism, where uh, people at the time were, were taught to document every single thing that happens in their lives for evidence of divine mercy or for evidence of some kind of providential message, some kind of either a a memento mori, a reminder of death or a lesson or, um, but the result is we have these diaries that are these spiritual exercises in just documenting every single little detail. And so they reveal this just obsession with illness because illness is a, a wonderful, very clear material way to see what they thought was God's intervention or God sending some mm-hmm. kind of divine message. And so that's kind of coming back to um, kind of bigger picture of the book. That's kind of one of the balances uh, or imbalances rather that I'm trying to address in the book is a lot of what we know about illness at this time period is based on that kind of writing because it's great for if you're interested in illness find something written by a Puritan, you'll find a lot of illness. And so I was trying to redress that imbalance by looking for self-writing by people who weren't, who didn't identify that way, who were Quakers or Anglicans or Catholics. So people of different religious backgrounds who weren't taught to monitor their bodies for every single sniffle and sneeze as a divine message. So, um, mm-hmm. I think that's why they seem almost obsessive about, illness. But then, of course, you have people like Samuel Pepys, who was not, didn't seem to be religious at all. And he was also just constantly monitoring his body. So some of it might just be, they were sick all the time. And it was really uncomfortable. Um, And it was just a way of kind of maintaining some kind of order and power over this just constant Mm -hmm. illness. Um, uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, we talked, you're somewhere a little bit uh, later, I think you talk about how this is a place where roles are reversed and people who generally get, who are carers, get to actually receive care. So mm-hmm. there's something, you know, there's something slightly beneficial. Um, also, yeah, people are sick and medicine's not good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is, you are, this is not helping. Um, well, they which, helping. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, absolutely. Um, 
<laughs> so then in your next chapter, the emotional causes of illness, um, you see, I think an, an ongoing kind of concern with illness and emotion um, and has, as advertised in the title, a lot to say about the relationship between your um, mental and physical well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. No, go on. <laughs> yeah. So, with, like, uh, talk to me about this chapter in particular. Sure. Um, yeah. So emotions are what they would call passions of the soul or a, one of the many ways mm-hmm. we get sick. Um, and I started when I started out writing, doing the research for this project, I just made lists of what are people saying caused their illness? What was the cause? And emotions just kept coming up again and again and again, more than I would have expected. And it came up a lot more commonly for the women writers than for the men. So again, men totally chalked up illness to grief and surprise and fear, um, but not as commonly and in a different way. So this chapter is trying to kind of make sense of that, why that would be. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that women not only more commonly looked to grief and fear to understand why they were falling sick, but that they're, they, the emotional experience they were describing tended to be sudden and immediate to have this kind of immediate effect. Like I saw Mm. my sick child and I immediately got sick. And then there was this second phenomenon I found Um, which I call mimetic suffering, which was this tendency by several of these women authors to almost to to seem to embody the illness of the loved one. So I see my brother sick from smallpox and then I get smallpox. This almost this kind of mirrored suffering. Um, So this chapter is kind of working through what, why this would be. And I kind of look to bodily understandings of women's physiology um, so with mm-hmm. in theory, women's bodies were thought to be more porous, more cooler and wetter than men's and more open and susceptible to thoughts and imagination and to external influences. So I think what's happening here, I mean, there was this belief at the time in the maternal imagination that what a woman thought when she was pregnant could imprint itself on her unborn child. So the women's bodies were very open to external influences, specifically through vision. So I think that is part of what was is happening in these explanations of, of emotional caused illness. And then I also look to gender norms, ideas about concern and duty and being a good mother and wife, daughter, men's concerns about self-mastery. Um, and then again, writing and kind of how mm-hmm. a lot of this sympathetic suffering is mirroring ways of showing sympathy in other kinds of writing, like correspondence. It's really, it's a trope in letters from the time mm-hmm. to say, oh, you're sick. I, I'm so sick to f- hear that you're sick. Um, sure. Right now. Yeah. This is, um, you know, and um, the understanding that like you, you make the, the, uh, you clarified that the, what we could call emotions, they think of as passions and the idea that these are, you know, overwhelming and embodied. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is this embodied kind of, mental state that we see quite a bit in the early modern period, um, which is, you carry through to chapter four, suffering on the sick bed, and then chapter five, perceptions of pain. In both of these places, I see, um, again, the idea that illness and wellness are kind of our, our community. They're mm-hmm. approved by the community and performed. Um, but what I really appreciate here is the, the, the language we see is so descriptive 
and, um, you know, when describing symptoms or how one feels, so descriptive and often uh, kind of illegible to me. Itchy blood is something you point out a couple Mm -hmm. times, for instance. Um, And I I have trouble sorting out what these people are talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard if um, it's... I think that's one of the cool things about studying this period is that their bodies are so unfamiliar to us and Mm -hmm. we don't have itchy blood. (laughs) I don't think so. Um, Yeah. And like the, the chapter on pain, there's a lot discussing, you know, this language for trying to make sense of pain, which is his trans historical phenomenon. A trans historical truth is it's very hard to describe pain without using metaphor. Sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think this kind of, just unfamiliarity with what they're talking about is part of what makes this kind of history so valuable to us because it really gives us the ability to see um, with more clarity how factors like these, you know, gender, religion, writing, race, all these kinds of factors are embedded in the ways we think about medicine and health. And it's, it's hard to see that in our own bodies and in our own world. But when you're talking about itchy blood and bodies that do all this stuff that doesn't make sense to us, it's much easier to see that that phenomenon. So I think that's part of what mm-hmm. makes it so cool and so valuable. Yeah, and cool and valuable it definitely is. Um and, and just fascinating, right? Um and when you see these these places of difference that you're not really clear on, that's really helpful. But it works for them. I mean, this ongoing thing that there's this I'm describing how I feel. I'm writing a letter to my sister. She will read it to her whole family. And I say, I have itchy blood and everybody knows what I mean, right? So this is clearly an effective language, just not one I necessarily speak. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that historians long before me have recovered about this time period is that there's a real shared knowledge of how bodies work and how health works in this time period. So uh, patients had a lot more say in their encounters with practitioners because they had this more more shared, more common understanding. They could say something like itchy blood and everyone was on the same page. Whereas today, often our, you know, our physicians and surgeons say if they talk in their jargon, it's hard for many patients to understand what they're talking about. Um, So Mm -hmm. there was this kind of common language of illness. I mean, which we certainly have that ridiculous pain chart with like smiley faces on it or something that I'm supposed to point out when I go into a doctor. Like, whatever. Right. Um, but, but yeah, how on earth do I make sense of what I'm feeling, you know, if we, without that language. Um, and then your final chapter is, as you mentioned before, a very, very different chapter. And it comes from a very different source base. Um, so what, what is your, what, what is your argument in chapter six, the illness narratives of the poor? This chapter is trying to recover illness experiences of people who could not write, who were unable to write, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty big challenge. So I turned to pauper petitions, which are these documents, these legal documents that poor people were using to dispute decisions by parish officials to stop a, to stop giving them granting them kind of a daily or a monthly rather living allowance so people depended on parish support for a lot of reasons because they were veterans and injured or because they were old or um, because they were sick and so sometimes the overseers these parish officials decided it was time to stop 
giving them this monthly allowance. And so these petitions are people who are disputing that choice. So they're disputing to uh, the court kind of above the overseers, this county criminal court called Quarter Sessions to say, no, I still need my allowance. So I looked to, I found 650 of these that were citing illness as the reason why they still needed this support from the parish. And this was my attempt to try to recover how a poor person might understand mm-hmm. illness. And so my argument here, a lot of it has to do with writing, with the genre of the petition, because of course, that's really shaping how illness and the body are talked about in these documents. They're nothing like the diaries and letters in the rest of the book. They're mediated, they're legal, they're formulaic, they're incredibly terse. They're really hard to use. And mm-hmm. So what I found is similar concerns about morality and piety, um, but contextualized in different ways. It's about here, it's about industry and responsibility and thrift, because of course they're trying to get something. They're trying to get financial support. So I think the the big takeaway here is about how uh how what we would call class, or in this time period you would use mm-hmm. a different word, but status matters how status is a really important category for making sense for how people understood their bodies. And when your body is a unit of labor, you're going to talk about your illness differently. And also about genre and and writing forms and how the the petition itself is really shaping how these paupers are constructing their illness um, in ways that are quite different from how Samuel Pepys or a wealthy person or even a middling class person would talk about illness um throughout though even with these papa records and congratulations like excellent work on these i can tell the, I, I i'm familiar with this sort of source base and i can tell how hard it is um so good craft there <laughs> um but you still see all the way through the way the description of illness is um you know kind of a means to an end the way that what you need from whatever it is you're trying to get out of your description or the discussion and whoever your audience is like really affects the way you talk about it. You know, it, mm-hmm. this idea that if, if illness keeps you from laboring and laboring is the thing that keeps you alive, right. then that's how you're going to discuss it. If illness um, makes you unhappy and, uh, and describes is a way you can describe how much you love your family, then that's the language you're going to use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's put, you put it really well. So, yeah, I mean, I, um, this, the idea, like, you know, the performativity here makes some, makes lots of sense. Um, and it's an, a very interesting place because it's embodied, because it's personal, but because it's this universal thing, humans are all, all humans are sick. So it's a really cool way to, to get at the differences you're able to tease out. Mm, thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was hard. It was this was definitely the weirdest, hardest chapter in part just because it was such a foreign kind of historical document for me. And it's it's so they're so terse and opaque that I actually had to use um, I had to use numbers, which is not my favorite thing to do. So instead of, you know, looking closely at language, which is my thing, I had to quantify because they're just yeah, like coding, like a social scientist. Did you do that? I wouldn't that far because I just don't have that skill set. But I should have probably. But yes, I had I had I had to use um oh my gosh, I'm FileMaker Pro, like t- 
Yeah, like so full basically data tracking. Um and just not what I usually do. I made charts. It's really weird. I don't make charts. Oh. Yeah, charts. Yeah, oh, wow. Um, did you call a sociologist or something? Well, I should have. So I would have probably made it a, a little historian better. joke. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I'm sorry, a little historian in in humor there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Fantastic. So this, as mentioned, this is an older book. And I am i know you're well into your new project, which I can't wait to read. Tell me about oh, it. Um, yeah, so my new project is about venereal disease. And it's got lots of interesting little tidbits in it. But um, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of it right now. I'm still trying trying to figure it out. But it, it started by looking at this group of venereal specialists living in London in the early 1700s who were just vicious, just attacking each other and publishing, you know, I'm the best. No, you're the best. You're a mere tailor. You're a tinker. I'm just really <laughs> vehemently arguing with each other. And now it's kind of broadened out. Um, and the, the kind of, I'm not sure how broad I'm going to go, but a lot of what we know, there's lots of great stuff on venereal disease. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is based on hospital records because that's, they're just robust records. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. in there. And we don't really know a lot about what it was like just day to day. Like, what about all the people who didn't go to the hospital? Just what was it like to live in the city and be sick with this disease? And what did it mean to have this disease? So I'm trying to kind of get at the history of this disease in a different way by looking at domestic records, recipes, maps, trade cards, just in a more kind of day-to-day picture of what it would be like to have venereal disease, which, by the way, Everyone seemed to have. It was very, very prevalent in the time period, but no one wanted to talk about having it. So it's it's really challenging um, to recover. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, it isn't. There's a certain group of people you expect to have it. Um, but nobody cares about them. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and I mean, it's it's so easy to handle now, and we still have these problems. Yeah, totally. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, especially now with what's going on, to think about disease as a historical category. So, um, you know, how are how people just conceived of disease so differently when in this time period in the 1700s and 1600s than we think about disease today? And of course, venereal disease was not epidemic; it wasn't a pandemic. Um, but as a category, as a way of thinking about, you know, they, they didn't really have the same sense that one disease entity affected all people uniformly. So it's mm-hmm. a really different perspective on disease. And um, I'm finding that kind of interesting to think about as I, as I work on this research. Yeah, I can see that. And the conception really of like the idea that your, you know, bodies are porous, that moral contagion is real. Mm-hmm. Um you know, when you the the early modern conception of embodiment is going to infer, like influence this, I would, ah, that'll be great. I'm really yeah. excited about it. Good luck with that. To work with. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Um, all right. So thank you so much. I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I am so sorry I interrupted you repeatedly. We will call it enthusiasm. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> All right. And uh, I will give you a call when the venereal disease project. So awesome. Talk about that. All right. Bye bye. Bye.